Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So John chapter 14, we will begin reading in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may also, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the life-giving word of the Lord. Martin Luther once wrote, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. I want to welcome you back to uh, the fourth part of this series titled Sola. It is subtitled The Heart of the Reformation. And the reason why we are in this series um, is because in a couple of days it will be October 31st. And uh, that's important, uh, not because it's Halloween, even though the kids will probably argue with you that it is important that it is Halloween. That's okay. It's, uh, but it's not important because it's Halloween. It's important because on that same day, October 31st, 500 years ago, the entire world, as we know it, changed. All of human history changed. Religion, politics, governments, education, the way people viewed family, the way that people saw themselves, in fact, the way people saw the world around themselves, completely changed because of what happened 500 years ago. And it didn't change because a war was declared. It didn't change because someone was assassinated. It, wasn't, it didn't change because a famous person got up in front of a, a large group of people and made an impassioned, historic, inspirational speech that changed hearts and minds. No. The entire world and all of human history with it changed instead because of one man. One man who wanted to have a conversation is, is really what changed the world. He wanted to have a conversation about some deep theological concerns that he had developed. This man, Martin Luther, because of his convictions in his heart, had a desire to have a dialogue with others about his theological concerns. You see, he had a question, a deep, important question. That question is probably perhaps one of the most important questions a human being can ask. ask. It's, a, it's a question that gets to the heart of who we are and where we're going. It's a question that concerns every single person, whether we want it to or not, whether we know it or not. <clears throat> Again, it's, it's probably one of the most important questions anyone could ever ask. And, and that question is this, what must I do to be saved? What must I do in order to be saved from my sins? And that right there is the truth, right? That's the question that all of us must face. It doesn't matter what your life is like. It doesn't matter how rich you have been and how many material possessions you have accumulated. It doesn't matter how, how successful you, you are in, in, in every way that you define success. You can experience all the experiences you desire. You can have the very best of relationships that anybody's ever had. You can experience all the fun and excitement that you could ever want in this life. You can live the greatest, most fulfilled and rewarding life imaginable. But if you don't get this question right, if you don't answer this question the correct way in your own life, your life is for nothing. Your life and all that you've ever lived for is absolutely for nothing because this life right here, this life right now is but a breath. It's but a vapor. It's temporary. This life is very short. No matter how good your life is, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how promising the future seems to be, the life that you have right here is absolutely going to come to an end. That is the fact. We will, your life will end. There's a point in the future that you will no longer be alive. I think we all know it, right? Right? 
We'll kind of have a sense of that. Somewhere in us all, we kind of know that. I mean, we're reminded of it, you know, by the times when we, we lose loved ones. We're painfully reminded of how short life is when we get the news that someone else in our life has died unexpectedly. Someone young. We're reminded of that even when we read about the tragedies that happen to other people. I just read a story this morning in Michigan. A vehicle ran into a carriage and like three kids, three kids, gone. In the back of our minds, we all know. I think in the back of our minds, we all understand. We are marching moment by moment toward an end. We're marching moment by moment towards the towards the conclusion of our lives. We're progressively approaching the end with every breath, with every second, with every heartbeat. We're closer to that moment. But for some reason, it doesn't always motivate us because there's something in us that believes we still have plenty of time. But hear me. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to make you emotional this morning. And I'm certainly not trying to manipulate your feelings. I just want to tell you the truth. And the truth is, one of the most important relevant facts that you will ever face is the fact that this life, no matter how wonderful, no matter how fulfilling, no matter how long it is, will ultimately come to an end. You will die. Death right now has a 100% success rate. Even Jesus died, right? He rose again, but he died. Every person before you has died. Every person in history, regardless of their contributions to the world, regardless of how amazing their lives were, every person in history has died, and we talk about them in the past tense because they're gone. Martin Luther is gone. The apostle Paul is dead. George Washington is in the grave. And you are not any different than they are. You two at some point will join them. And you will be with them. And so will I. And for some of you, it may be sooner. Some of you, it may be later. We don't know the time. We don't know how long we have. But in the end, we will all, every one of us, join them. In fact, I think it's pretty safe to say that in a hundred years, we will all have joined them. Right? And when we do, when we step off, we will, we will step off into the next part of our life that is not temporary. Right? That is not short, but instead is eternal the part of our life that will last forever. And when that happens, the question that Martin Luther was wrestling with is going to be the most relevant question in your life. What must I do to be saved? Because what we all have to understand is we will, we will stand before God and give an account for our lives. Every one of us will come before a God and we will be held accountable for what we've done in this life. And the truth is we will all be found wanting. We will all come up short. That's what, that's what Martin Luther understood. He knew that if, that if he died without answering that question, he was doomed because he knew, as Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no mystery behind that, that everyone's a sinner. And he knew that the wages of sin, what he earned because of his sin, was death or eternal spiritual separation from God, which is the definition of hell. A permanent sentence, not for just a little while, but for all eternity. As Jesus said, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Martin Luther knew that if he died in his sins, he was in really deep trouble. 
And that idea terrified him. And it should. The prospect of an eternity separated from God, the prospect of an existence of emptiness and darkness and torment that lasts forever and ever and ever should terrify everyone. The idea of dying and standing before God terrified Martin Luther because he didn't know the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? But then one day, on July 2nd, 1505, Martin Luther came face to face with death. He was returning to the university, riding on a horse from a, from a trip home. And while he was on his way traveling through the forest, he got caught in a thunderstorm. A thunderstorm that was overwhelmingly fierce. And he had nowhere to go, no shelter to escape to. And during that thunderstorm, lightning crashed all around him. He must have thought he was in the middle of the apocalypse. right? And suddenly lightning struck right next to him and it knocked him to the ground. And he believed in that moment he was about to die. And what was worse for him, he's, he knew that he was about to stand before God, unprepared to give an account for his life. And so he was terrified. And in his terror, he resorted to his, his Catholic understanding of faith. And he cried out to the one he thought could save him, a saint. He yelled, saint, help, Saint Anna, I will become a monk, was the promise that he had made. Well, he survived. He survived the storm and he believed that it was supernatural that he did. And so he made good on his promise. And 15 days later, he left law school, sold his books and entered St. Augustine's monastery. And at the monastery, Luther became completely dedicated to the life of a monk. Because he believed that if he, he did, if he, if he would live that kind of life, he would, he would garner favor, the favor of God and God would spare him. And, and, and forgive him of his transgressions. He felt that that was the way you answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And so it became, it, it seemed, but it, but it seemed that there was no matter what he did, no matter how hard he worked, he still felt the guilt and the conviction of his sins. He, he instinctively knew, right, that if he met God, he would still be in trouble. And it seemed that nothing that he did would bring him peace, not fasting, not long hours of confession, not endless hours of prayers, not becoming a priest. Martin Luther did everything that the church had told him to do at the time to be saved. But he continued to live under the weight of the guilt of his sin. He continued to live knowing that at any moment he could die and that he would not be able to stand when God judged him. But Martin Luther pressed on. He fasted for long periods. He denied himself every form of worldly comfort in an effort to punish his own body. He would inflict pain on himself. He was so desperate to earn God's acceptance that he tortured himself. He would sleep at night with no blankets, no matter how cold it was. He would even sleep in a snowstorm one time in an effort to drive the guilt of his sin out of him. Martin Luther literally nearly killed himself with his self-imposed punishments for his sins. And yet, that guilt still remained. In fact, it grew worse. The harder he worked, the more he did, the harder he tried to earn God's love and forgiveness, the more he became aware of how impossible that is. And Martin Luther became increasingly aware of the fact that he couldn't escape his sin. There's nothing he could do to erase it. And as a result, he became emotionally desperate. Martin Luther later confessed that he hated the righteousness of God and he was angry with God because he couldn't overcome the guilt that he felt that God had laid upon him. And it seemed that the harder he worked, the more aware of his iniquity and how desperate his situation was. Martin Luther said this period of his life was one of deep spiritual despair. He said, I lost touch with Christ, the Savior and, and the Comforter, and made him the jailer and the hangman of my poor soul. When he looked at Christ, he didn't see hope. He saw condemnation. Martin Luther nearly gave up, though. He began to despise and hate God. But something in him was connected to the Apostle Paul. There was something in Paul's life and Paul's struggles that Martin Luther connected with. There was something in Paul's life that gave him hope. And so he continued to hold on to Paul and to read his letters, especially the book of Romans. And he read 
And he, and he studied, and as he meditated upon the book of Romans, he really began to struggle internally, internally with what he found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this was, was, this was perplexing to Martin Luther. The scripture here didn't make any sense to him because what he saw in this text were two things that didn't line up with what he understood about salvation. The first idea was the righteousness of God being revealed from faith, being for faith. The second is that the righteous live by faith. Because what Martin Luther understood was, was the righteousness of God was something you had to work for. It, it was something to be earned. Yes, you had to have faith, but you also had to have baptism and communion and confession and indulgences and confirmation and fasting and long hours of prayer and self-denial and last rites and on and on and on and on the list wins. He was caught by this, by, by, by the Catholic Church. He was taught by them that, that, that the righteousness of God was available, but it was made available through the church, through the sacramental systems of works. But you could never really know if you've ever had enough or did enough to accomplish that. But here Paul was saying very clearly in the text, the righteousness of God was revealed. It was made manifest, not by any of that stuff, but from faith. And it was for faith. And those who have this righteousness, this, this righteousness of God, not they don't get it by their works. Right? They live by faith. And as he contemplated this, as he wrestled with these ideas, Luther came to finally realize that salvation was not something to be earned, but instead was a gift that was given, a free gift for not for those who earn it, but a gift for the guilty. Salvation was not a reward for the self-righteous. Martin Luther began to understand that, that man is not saved by, by his good works at all, but only in trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The righteousness that a person needs is something a person cannot earn by his own efforts. The righteousness they need comes from the outside of them. It must come from God, and that righteousness is available to sinners by faith. And in the darkness of his deep spiritual despair, and in the quagmire of his brokenness, he found the light of the Scriptures. Not the light of church tradition, not the light of papal pronouncements, not the light of, of church councils, certainly not the light of legalism or, or rule-keeping, not the light of his own efforts. He found the light of the Scriptures, the Word of God. And Scripture made it very clear that justification was, about, was not about what he could do for God. Salvation was about trusting what God had already done for him through Jesus Christ. And at this, Martin Luther walked out of the darkness and into the light and was finally set free. He was finally free from the guilt that plagued him his entire adult life, the guilt that pushed him to almost kill himself through his self-torture. Martin Luther said, when I discovered that the righteous um, live by faith, I was, I was born again of the Holy Spirit. And the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Martin Luther read the word of God and came to understand that the answer to the question of what I must do to be saved was different in the scriptures than it was being taught in the church. What must I do to be saved? Believe. Put your, put your faith in Christ is what you do. He came to understand that the scripture tells us that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And because he began to see and understand this, and because he saw something different in the church and what it was teaching, the church that he loved so very much, Martin Luther wanted to have a conversation 
A conversation about the discrepancies. He wanted to either correct what was wrong or be corrected. Right? All he knew is the Bible said one thing and the church is saying something else. And so Martin Luther wrote down his concerns on a document called the 95 Theses and he nailed them to the church door at the University of Wittenberg. Not as an act of rebellion. Not as an act of protest. But simply as a, as a public invitation to, ha- to have a, a dialogue a debate, a conversation. And it was that act of nailing a document to the door, an everyday mundane act, something that many people had already done before. That act of nailing a document to the door, October 31st, 1517, it was that act that changed the world. Because Martin Luther's concerns about salvation resonated like a clear bell with the rest of the world. You see, some of his students took down the document and they took it to a printer, which was relatively a new phenomena. And the printer saw an opportunity, made copies of these 95 theses, and he distributed it all over Germany and throughout Europe. And more and more people began to see these discrepancies uh, between the Bible and what it taught and what the church was teaching, especially about this question, what must I do to be saved? And this, this event of nailing this document to the door, began to have a life of its own, and it became a movement that spread all over Europe and became known as the Reformation, or the Protestant Reformation, the Reformation of God's church. It was during this time period that that four foundational ideas were rediscovered about the nature of salvation, and they were sola gratia, or were saved by grace alone, through sola fide, Faith alone, in solus Christus, Christ alone. And it is all for soli de gloria, or the glory of God alone. You see, Martin Luther and his desire for a conversation and the resulting reformation were all about a return to the heart of the gospel. A gospel that had been hidden by church tradition, but was made clear by the word of God. And because of this, Sola Scriptura became the slogan of the reformers that they used when it came to talking about their source of truth and their their, their source of hope of salvation. We appeal to the Scriptures alone as our final authority of truth. And that Scripture tells us that we're not saved by what we do. We are saved not by our merit. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is it. And out of the Reformation came these life-changing slogans, the world-altering slogans that reflect the original life-saving gospel. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. And these are the things that we have been touching on and talking about the last few weeks. In fact, we started off talking about Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, and we explored what it means to us. What it meant then, what it means to, for us today, and how we apply this to our world. And then week two, we talked about, um, uh, we spent some time talking about sola, uh, sola gratia, or grace alone. The fact that we are not saved by anything we do, or anything that was within us, but by God's amazing grace alone. And we talked about the impact of that on our lives and how we live. And last week, we talked about sola fide, which is faith alone. We are saved by God's grace, Right? We're saved by God's grace, but we receive the gift of salvation, not by the works we do, but by our faith alone in Christ. Salvation is made ours when we receive that gift by faith. Faith is how we receive Christ, and it's by faith that we live in the kingdom of God. Now this week we're going to talk about the object of that faith. Solus Christus, or Christ alone. You see, it's just not good enough to have faith in something. The faith that we have must be fixed and attached to something or someone. That faith must rest on something you know, or someone that is worthy of our faith. Because faith implies trust. right? And whatever you trust in must then be trustworthy. It must be something that can accomplish what you're trusting it to do. Right? If there's a promise, you must be, be able to trust it to fulfill that promise. For example, my wife tells me that she's going to bring me lunch so I don't have to leave the office. I have every faith that she'll do it. Right? Because my wife does what she says she's going to do. Right? 
I can trust her. I have faith in her. And the reason why I have faith in her is she's been proven trustworthy. She is fully capable of living up to the promises that she makes. Now, on the other hand, I I have a friend who is always late. In fact, if they say, I'm going to be there at 10, I can count on the fact that they'll be here at 11, 11.30. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, and so when they say, I'll be there at a certain time, I don't, I, I don't, I don't believe that. I have every confidence that they won't be here at that time. Why? Because there's just not a reason to believe it. I don't have faith. I don't have a reason to have faith in that. In fact, I know other people who believe, right? And other people have faith that this person will show up when they say they will. And when it doesn't happen, they're disappointed, upset, like they didn't know that the sun was coming up, right? It's like, you know for a fact. They, but their faith is misplaced. It's misassigned. Right? They're let down. Well, it's the same thing with, with our faith in God. Because what you put your faith in is what you're trusting to save you from your sins. And what you put your faith in needs to be able to deliver on the promise. What you put your faith in needs to be able to save you. You see, the object of your faith is actually more important than your faith itself. Now, our faith, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Our faith that we hold on to for salvation is, as the Reformers rediscovered, is in Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sola gratia, sola fide, in solus Christus. We are justified by our faith in Christ alone. Now, why is it so important that we continue to make this distinction of Christ alone? As you've heard me say it a lot over the last few weeks. That word alone. Well, because the truth is, faith in Christ is not something new. It's foundational to the church. It's foundational to the entire Christian movement. You can't be a Christian without faith in Christ. If you're to be saved, you had to have faith in Christ. You have to believe in him, otherwise you're not a Christian. Right? If you don't have faith in Christ, then you can be a Jew, or you can be a Muslim, but you can't be a Christian. You must have faith in Christ in order to be a Christian. Even the Catholic Church taught that at the time. They believed you had to have faith in Christ. So why this distinction then of faith alone? Why do we keep coming back and hammering this point over and over again? Well, the reason is that over the centuries, between the 4th and 15th century, the object of the Christian faith was Christ, but it became more than just Christ. For some reason, the church began to adopt a position that faith was about Christ and then also his mother Mary. And it became about Christ and Mary and then the saints. And it became about all those things and then the church and the relics and the the, the rites like indulgences. And it became about papal authority over the life of the believer. And suddenly the object of the Christian faith became the objects of the Christian faith. For Martin Luther and the rest of 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 the world at that time, the rest of the Christian world prior to the Reformation... The object of one's faith was not just one object, but many objects. Somehow through the evolution of that theology, Christ became less than sufficient, less than enough to save you. And somehow mankind needed more than Jesus. It needed more than Christ interceding for us. Suddenly the church needed his mom, Jesus, to intercede for us as well. But that wasn't enough. The church needed the saints to intercede for us. And then it needed priests to intercede on their behalf here in this world. Christ as the high priest, for some reason, was not seemed to be enough or sufficient enough to reconcile us to God. But as Martin Luther read the New Testament, he's, he saw this was wrong, this was nonsense. Christians don't need, need the church to be saved. We need the church. We don't need the church to be saved. We don't need traditions. Christians don't need the saints or Mary. Christians don't need you know, confessionals to have salvation. We don't need their Eucharists. And we certainly don't need indulgences. People need, needed then what they have always needed and what they still need today. They need Jesus. That's what you need. 
Jesus alone. Solus Christus. And the reason why we know that, the reason why we know that's what we need, is because what the Bible tells us. Scripture is really clear about this. In the book of Acts, the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends who was with him throughout his life of ministry, said, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. None. Not in the name of the church. Not in the name of the saints. Not in the name of Muhammad. Not in the name of Buddha. Not in the name of Joseph Smith. Not in the name of any pastor. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ alone. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. One God and one mediator. That's it. One. But the church insisted that you still needed another mediator. It still actually insisted to this day. You see... Were told, they were told that they needed the saints to intercede for them and to be a mediator. They said that, that, that you need Mary to intercede and be a mediator. In fact, the Catholic Church today still, in their doctrine, calls Mary the mediatrix. Mediatrix is the female form of the word mediator. Right? They, they believe you have to pray to Mary, that she has to intercede for you. Right? She has to mediate for you. But if that weren't enough, then you also have to have the local priest to mediate for you too. You need him to perform the Eucharist of communion. Because if you don't have that, you can't be saved without the Eucharist. You also need your priest to hear your confessions because he's the one that forgives you of your sins. Otherwise, you die in your sins. You also need the local priest to perform last rites. You need him to mediate for you in your sins. But Scripture is completely at odds with this Teaching, this church tradition and papal authority, Scripture is in complete opposite um, opposition to it. As Paul clearly says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the men, Christ Jesus, Christ alone, which is exactly what Jesus himself says. Look with me again at John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, you got to understand the reason why Jesus is saying that is, is because his disciples are troubled. Right? It's because at this point, he's near the end of his ministry and things are changing. Jesus is about to be arrested and killed and he's been preparing him for this. In fact, he's told them that he's going to be lifted up and he told them he's going away. And they're freaking out because they had expected that Jesus as the Messiah, they have this very Jewish idea of what a Messiah is. That he's going to come, he's going to ascend to the throne of David and literally be a physical king in Jerusalem. And Israel will one day become the superpower of the entire world. And they would be his, his greatest advisors and it would be, be all great forever. And they misunderstood that, that, that the Messiah wasn't coming to save just Israel, but to save the world. Right? So here they are freaking out because Jesus has said he's leaving and, and they're at the Last Supper and he tells them even more bad news. He says, actually, one of you is going to betray me. And then Peter gets all like defensive and says, I'll go with you wherever you want me to. I'll even go to you with the grave. And then Jesus looks at him and says, hey, by the way, Peter, you know, my, my good friend, you're going, to be, you're going to deny me. This is a very strange and disconcerting event for the followers of Christ because they are not fully grasping what's happening and what Jesus is talking about. And he tells them, where I'm going, you cannot, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And they're just like, scratch. what are you talking about? They're confused. They're upset. They're emotional. And so Jesus seeks to encourage them and he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, don't trouble yourselves. Just trust in God. 
trust in me. And then he makes this glorious promise. The promise that we look forward to that gives us peace. The promises that, that erases the fear that we have of facing God after we die. He said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. There's a place for you in heaven, is what he's saying. There's a place for you already. It's done. He says, if not, it were not so, but I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself where I, that, that, that where I am, you may be also. What a glorious promise. You see, before Christ in our lives, we all had Nothing to look forward to. The only thing we had to look forward to was the prospect of one day standing before a holy God, covered up in our sins, trying to give, our, give an account for, for our lives with our mouths being shut by the law, knowing that we had fallen short, knowing all the stuff that we had done, knowing that we rightly deserve God's wrath. We rightly deserve His justice. We rightly deserve to be sent to hell. But now being saved by grace through faith in Christ. And because of that, we don't dread the future. We don't dread what's going to happen on the other side. We look forward to it. We embrace it. We have peace about it. Because there will come a time when Jesus will come and he will take us home. And when that happens, we will live with him forever. That's what the Bible tells us. In fact, we're told, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And part that takes my breath is, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? A world that you walk in, there's no more crying or death or pain. He says, for the former things have passed away. That is the promise. That is why those who who are saved by faith, that's what they have to look forward to. That's what Martin Luther desperately wanted. That's what he worked so hard for for so many years under the Catholic system of salvation. He desired with all of his heart to know that kind of future was his. But this future is not available to you by your works. It's not available to you by your self-righteousness. The future is not available for those who, who are trying to earn it by the traditions of men. This future is available because you trust not in the saints. This future is available through Christ alone. The promise is made and is available by grace through faith in Christ alone. In fact, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. In essence, you know how to get to heaven. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Right? Jesus said, you already know the way to heaven. And Thomas is like, uh, I'm not sure about that, um, what you're talking about, Jesus, but we don't know the way. And then Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, it's me. It's me. I'm the way. I'm the way to heaven, is what he's saying. Jesus says, you know the way. And Thomas is like, I, 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 don't, I don't know the way. And Jesus said, yeah, you do. It's me. You know me. Right? You already know the way. It's me. I'm the way to heaven. I'm, I'm the way that you get there. Not religions, not traditions, not saints, not by fasting, not by torturing your body. I'm the way to get there. I'm going to go prepare a place for you in heaven so that we can live together forever. Right? And you know how to get there. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I'm the way. You know me. I'm the way. Jesus says, he says, I'm the way there. I'm the truth. I'm the life. 
And if that weren't clear enough for you, Thomas, if that weren't clear enough for you, doubting Thomas, all right, hear me then. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father in heaven unless they come through me. Why? Because I'm the way. I'm the way to get there. I'm the truth. I'm the life. So no one gets there without me. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how nice you are, how desperate you are. No one, regardless of their money or religion, comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the very path to heaven. I'm the very truth about God and salvation. And I am the life. Life eternal is in me because I am that life. In fact, Jesus said a few chapters earlier, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he, yet shall he live. The only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to be saved is through Christ alone. Now, why is that? I mean, I mean, I know that he says that. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But why him? Why not something else? Why can't it be something else? Why can't it be other paths? I mean, we hear it all the time, right? There's all paths lead to God. All religions lead to God. All religions have some truth. Why is it him? Why is it so exclusive? Well, in the text, Jesus actually tells us. The problem is, is that when we read it in English, we just miss it. We just, we just skip right over We don't even see it. You see, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the most important part of this expression of the words, I am. He said, I am. And those words are translated from the Greek. And the Greek words are ego iemi. And the reason why this is important is because this isn't the first time that Jesus uses this expression. And this expression isn't like natural, actually. It's a really odd expression to say, I am. But there's a reason why he uses it. In fact, 23 times in the book of John, he uses this expression. Every one has a theological value to it. In fact, seven of the most prominent ones. Seven times he uses this, this ego emi or I am you know, statement um, And he connects it to a a metaphor about who he is to tell us more about his nature. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine, he says. Jesus uses ego emi. When he does, he's he's like, "I'm, I'm revealing myself Something about myself, right? He reveals himself to us in the book of John with these expressions because there's a theological connection he's trying to make. And perhaps the most important of these, probably the greatest revelation that Jesus makes about himself using this statement is John chapter 8, where Jesus was arguing with some scribes and Pharisees. The the scribes and Pharisees are like, you got a devil in you. And Jesus is like, shut up. I don't have a devil in me. He said, "You're, you're the children of the devil. And they're like, we're not the children of the devil. Abraham's our father. And then, Abra- and then Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Um, Jesus says, Abraham. Yeah, Abraham longed to see my day. In fact, he did see my day. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. And you're going to tell me that, that you knew Abraham? Abraham was like hundreds of years before. What are you talking about? You are crazy. We know you have a demon. And then Jesus says something that just completely catches him off guard. It was an earth-shattering statement. And in English, it almost sounds like, again, we miss it unless we understand where he's coming from. But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego iemi. Now, here's the thing. is They knew what he meant when he said that because they picked up rocks because they were going to kill him. When he said those words, they immediately were going to try to kill him. Now, why? Because Jesus in that moment used the very words, the very same expression that, that, that God used when he talked to Moses. Moses asked God when, when he was going to be sent to, to uh, Egypt to save the, the Israelites. He says, well, then who do I say sent me? I mean, just saying God doesn't sound right. So, I mean, like, so what, what's, what's your name? How do I know? How can I tell them that, that, that you were the one that sent me? And he says, say this to the people of Israel. 
I am has sent me to you. This is the expression that Jesus used and the Jews knew exactly what he meant. He was calling himself God when he used that expression and they were going to kill him for it because it was blasphemy in their eyes. He said before Abraham was, ego, iemi. And he uses this exact same expression when he says, I am, ego, iemi. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's making a claim about his divinity. The reason why I'm the way to heaven is because I'm God. You see, the reason why Jesus says it this way is because Jesus is truly God in the flesh. Remember in the book of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the reason why Jesus is the only mediator between God and man is because he is both fully God and fully man. You have to understand this theologically. Only he could reconcile God and man. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Christ is the only one in all of the universe possible who can reconcile God and man. Because he himself is the only one who is fully God and fully man. He's the only one who's qualified to be the mediator. How dare we say that we need a human mediator besides him? Only Jesus can bridge the gap between God and man. Because in him is the reconciliation that we need. See, in him... As a man, he fully satisfied the righteous requirements of the law that we couldn't do. He did for us. And in him, as God, he has the ability then to give grace and the forgiveness that we need to be saved. In Christ are all the pieces fit together. In Christ, all the righteous requirements are met for salvation to be possible. That's why he's both the just And the justifier of the one who has faith in him. He's the one who holds us accountable. And he's the one who makes makes it possible for us to be saved. As Peter, the apostle says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other God-man that's ever existed in all of eternity. We're not saved by anything else except for Jesus Christ. You're saved, my friends, by sola gratia, grace alone. By sola fide, faith alone. In solus Christus, in Christ alone. Glory, hallelujah. You are not saved by what you do because you can't do enough. You're not set free by the church because we know as much as we love the church is still imperfect. You're not saved by any man-made traditions because we can see the flaws in them too. You're not saved by any other means. But Christ alone. And praise the Lord that he made it foolproof that God himself did it all so that we can't mess it up. You're saved by solus Christus in Christ alone. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I praise you with all my heart. That's how you designed it. I praise you that it's not left up to me. I know me. I know who I am. And if there's a way to mess it up, I would do it. Not because I want to, it's just that's just who I am. I wake up every day and I live with who I am. I know as much as I've changed, as much as you have changed me, I still see in me the ability to make a mess of things. And so I just praise you, Lord, that I am saved by, you, by grace, that you just decided to save me, and that you've enabled me to have the faith in you to follow you with all my heart. 
And that, that, that it's done through Christ. That, that Christ did all the work. A hundred percent. Not anything I could do. I just, I just, I just shout that. And I just pray, Father, Lord, help us to redeem that. Help us to share that. Help us to not get caught up in legalism. Right? We, we do talk, Lord, about where the, the Catholic Church was at that time and in many respects still is. But even Protestant churches, Lord, get this all messed up. We want to go, yes, we're saved by Jesus. Now I got to do stuff. I got to make myself right with God. I got to make myself acceptable to God. And I just, I just praise you that it's not that way. That I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. And I'm not saved just from my, the penalty of my sin, but I'm saved from the power of my sins. And I'm progressively able to overcome that. But in that, I don't obey you to make you love me. I, I obey you because, because you already did love me. And you enable me and you give me that ability. And I just pray, Father, that we'd all walk in that. that we'd desire to know that even better. We would, we would just wake up every day. Praise you, Lord. I don't have to earn your love today. No matter how dark the clouds are outside, I didn't have to earn your love today, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your grace. And I pray that all of us, Lord, would be moved by that to tears, that we'd be shaken to our core, and that we walk outside and we would share that hope that we have with other people around us. That you would create revival in this church and in this community and raise up a people who, who are passionate for your name. And I pray that you'd bless those who are not here today and that you'd meet all those who are here right where they need to be met and you would minister to their hearts, Lord, and you would just give them that confidence that you're in control because we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And it is in the glorious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.